Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. After my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. (laughs) Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash getmore. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we're going to reveal the hidden secrets of the public mind, looking at the biggest polling stories driving news, politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. So first, quick announcement. Welcome, new listeners. We know you're out there. And if you are on Stitcher in particular, please take a moment to write a little review, um, especially if you're one of our new listeners and subscribers. So that way, more folks on Stitcher can find us because the way Stitcher works, you have to write a review in order for people to happen to stumble upon you as opposed to look you up. So, And for other folks, make sure, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook and send us questions, send us polls, and and, uh, we'll probably talk about them. So, Kristen, what are the top lines today? The top lines today, Hillary Clinton is only seven points ahead of Bernie Sanders in a recent Des Moines Register poll coming out of Iowa. Is this shades of 2008? Then Trump and Carson are way out in front of the Republican pack in Iowa. Are people mad as hell and not going to take it anymore? Also, we'll take a look at some polling about whether or not voters have the right idea when it comes to candidates' faith, whether it's Donald Trump's Christianity or what Republican voters think about Barack Obama's faith. We'll also take a look at some polling on when it's okay to use a cell phone in a restaurant, on public transit. We'll look at what people think is and is not acceptable. We'll also bring you an interview with Des Moines Register pollster Ann Selzer, um, who's been working with Des Moines Register and Bloomberg to bring us some of the best polling out of Iowa and beyond. And finally, we'll talk a little bit about Kanye and the Kanye West Wing. Is he a contender? in 2020. Why not? Why not? So um, there's been tons of stuff out, tons of newsworthy polling out this week, particularly um, the Iowa Bloomberg Des Moines Register poll that we're going to talk about in more detail with Anne in our interview. But um, but basically, though, we were showing a clear sign of movement on uh, the Democratic side, for sure. People seem to be feeling the burn. Pundits are feeling burned, uh, even even the folks of 538 who have said, uh, who have, you know, gone out of their way to say, well, we're going to try and, you know, talk about ways that potentially Sanders can uh, do well, even though we don't really think that he could succeed. But yet you're seeing for the first time uh, in, in the polling, we've seen this cycle in Iowa. Clinton is under 50, uh, just seven points ahead of Sanders with Biden in the race, uh, even though he's unannounced. Um 
And, uh, and, and so, you know, the issue is really, is it the, the question, is this about Clinton? Are people moving away from Clinton? Her favorables have dropped some, or is this really about Sanders? His favorables have increased substantially. And 96% of Sanders voters say they're supporting him because they like him and his policies. And as we've talked about last week on the show, he, you know, he's not what differentiates him from Trump is that he's not criticizing his opponents. He's talk- he is truly talking about the issues. Um, and, the, you know, then the last piece is the Clinton email story where um, a lot of people are, are pointing to the email story as the reason why uh, Clinton is struggling some in the polls among Democrats in Iowa, at least, they say this isn't important to them personally. It may be important to general election voters. It may be important to people who are already not going to vote for. But if Democrats say are saying it's not really important to them, then is that what is happening? So, Kristen, what do you think as you look at this from the other side, the other side of the wall, so to speak? Yeah, I think this is an extension of that discussion we had, I think, a couple of weeks ago about electability and whether electability matters to people at this point. So, you know, if you're a Democratic voter and you like Hillary Clinton, you're inclined to think the best of her. And so, yeah, that she set up her own personal email server, eh, this seems like maybe not that big a deal if, if, if you, you know, if you already kind of like Hillary Clinton. And so, you know, it makes sense to me that you'd see such high numbers of likely Democratic caucus goers, both Clinton and non-Clinton supporters, saying they don't think that the story is important. Um, you know, for those folks who don't think that as a policy matter, it's important, you know, if if electability isn't an issue, if electability is not something people are concerned about right now, then it would absolutely make sense that people would go, you know, I'm not worried that Hillary Clinton's going to have a problem in a general election over these emails. I don't think this is important, so I'm not bringing it up. So this actually doesn't surprise me that much. I'm frankly surprised that, you know, you wind up with just about a quarter of uh, Hillary Clinton supporters who say that, you know, it's at least somewhat important. Um, but but it, I'm, I'm really just think this is like voters saying it doesn't matter to me. And at the moment, it doesn't matter to me if it matters to other people. Right, right. And, you know, I guess, you know, you can look at these numbers if you're a Clinton supporter, you know, as half full or half empty. I mean, if you look at her favorables, they've gone down from since June from it was 88 and 10 fave on fave to 77, 19. You know, that's a drop. It's it's not a massive drop. It's, you know, she does have more. Uh, I would say somewhat favorable uh, ratings than very favorable ratings. Um, if you look at Sanders, he's gone up from fifty-seven-four to seventy-three-eight. That's a pretty giant jump. I mean, this is Iowa, and this is hard ID. He was—he's obviously hasn't been sort of in the national news for as long as Clinton. Um, his favorability has a little bit more intensity. So he went from some about even between very and somewhat fave to more very fave than somewhat fave. Again, not massive differences here, but if you look at Clinton where most of her favorable is somewhat favorable, he's his favorability is basically evenly divided more or less between very and somewhat fave. So that's a sign that his favorability is more intense than hers. Um, it doesn't mean that people are sort of unexcited about her, but it doesn't mean that perhaps people are more excited about Sanders, or at least the folks who are excited about him are really excited about him. 
Right. Um, but, you know, a lot of folks have said there was a question, uh, if Hillary Clinton drops out of the race for some reason, are you mostly satisfied with the slate of other declared candidates? And it included Lincoln Chafee, Martin O'Malley, Bernie Sanders and Jim Webb. The question named all four of them. Is it or would you want more candidates to enter the race? And a majority of Hillary Clinton supporters said They'd want others to enter the race. Yeah. Um, now, this is an, it's an end size of 162, so it's not huge, but um, that a majority said, you know, that their their preferred second choice is not currently in the field. I wonder if that's I mean, that's got to be part of why Joe Biden actually wins on the question of who is your second choice at 24 right. percent. So it seems to me that there may be a lot of Bernie Sanders voters who in the end would be perfectly fine with Hillary Clinton. But I wonder if that street runs both ways, if there are a lot of Hillary Clinton voters who maybe would be less enthusiastic about Bernie Sanders and are kind of hoping that someone besides a Martin O'Malley would be an option if for whatever reason this Clinton email scandal situation gets way out of hand. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to talk about the general and sort of national polling in a minute, and we'll dig a little bit deeper in these uh, numbers with Anne. But on the Republican side, so I guess, you know, Carson's a, it's a, it's a real thing now, you know? Carson's it is a real a thing. thing. And I think most people who watched the debate who were kind of establishment pundit types, and I count myself among them, you know, didn't think that Carson had a particularly impressive debate performance because he didn't really get to talk that much. Um, and maybe his most memorable thing he said was at the end, he kind of had this joking moment uh, about, well, I guess if all the other people up here are talking about what they're the only person to have done, uh, I'm the only person that's ever separated conjoined twins. I mean, he's got this very kind of like low key, dry wit, soft spoken style that's the opposite of Donald Trump in so many ways. But both of them do not sound like normal politicians. No. And actually, and so, I have yeah. to say, I I know, right? I mean, it, it didn't really, can't, it seems like a strange thing to sort of build a, pres, a you know, presidential campaign around. You know, I've also seen him be much more bombastic and aggressive on television than he was in that debate. I mean, maybe, you know, yeah. I don't have a full range of sample of Ben Carson's, you know, speaking style, but I've seen him be more, more aggressive than he was. And none, nonetheless, either, either way, it's, it's strange. It's, you know, I don't know sort of what his policy positions are. It's strange to me to see him be so clearly in number two. It, it probably also says something about, you know, how people feel about the rest of the field. But we've seen it now in a lot of polls where not only is he number two, he has very strong favorables. I mean, really like um, incredibly amazing favorability ratings. Yeah, he's I think he's very well liked in part because I mean, he has said some things that folks are like, oh, man, in a general election, that's going to make a great ad for the Democrats. But that overall, if you tune in to listen to him, I mean, he's kind of a he, he also sounds more like someone that you might know in real life talking about politics than most politicians are. Um, and so I think that's, I think that's a big, it's, it's, it is astonishing to me that so much of the top of the Republican field are people who are not politicians. But when you look at data about how upset people are um, at politicians and at government, and we'll talk about these numbers here in a minute, um, it's, uh, it, it, maybe it isn't that surprising. I think of uh, the other big thing that's come out of a lot of this Iowa polling on the Republican side has been the demise of Scott Walker over the summer that he, you know, we've talked previously about how he used to be a top tier candidate. He was the, uh, the leader of the current Republican governor pack. 
Um, and he has just collapsed in the most recent Loris College poll. He's below Jeb Bush. Um, he is now back in in the middle of the pack and, and has had his support really um, just eaten away by the rise of Trump and the rise of Carson. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there are a couple of things I find interesting about what's going on in the Republican field. I mean, at, at some level, all of this fluctuation in the numbers does actually reflect what you see the candidates doing. I mean, you haven't heard Scott Walker have a real good, positive moment in a while. You haven't heard Jeb Bush have a good, positive moment, particularly in a while. You've seen Carly Fiorina have a lot of positive moments. And, and the polling you know, really reflects that even if, you know, you, you have this sense and maybe it's because we're talking about Iowa here, at maybe a little bit more than nationally. But, um, you know, you have to be following this all quite closely to see all of this. You know, you have to really be following the news pretty seriously to, to have a sense of who's had a moment and who's not had a moment. So at some level, you, you see actually the voters, you know, really paying quite a bit of attention. What do you think? I think voters are starting to pay a little more attention. I think now that we've had the first debate, um, you know, folks who previously were saying, look, I just want to wait for this to kind of sort itself out and for this field to shrink. I mean, there are now candidates who are in the bottom part of the field that get almost no airtime at all. I mean, when was the last time you heard had a headline, a Rick Perry headline or a Bobby Jindal headline? I mean, so they're trying, but it's just it's not, you know. So there's this feeling that even though there are 17 people running, the media, I think, is much narrower in, in who's getting attention. And as voters are tuning in, I mean, you can't escape you can't escape the Trump discussion. So, I, you know, I'm, I've been down in Florida for the last week. And for folks that work in politics and live in D.C., I'm sure you probably experience this. Like whenever you go home for the holidays or you go to visit, you know, somewhere that's not D.C. for, for more than a few days, everybody wants to ask you, what do you think of Trump? What's going on in the race? I mean, Lots of folks down here uh, have been like, what what is going on with the Trump phenomenon? And that a lot of them just don't quite know what to make of him yet. But I think you're seeing this this weird like rise in Trump's favorables, even though he's saying all of this stuff that's way off the wall. I think people are amused that there's someone who is just so willing to flout the establishment and flout expectations that even if the stuff he's saying is like way out there, I mean... It is the illusion of honesty. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the other thing, too, for people who are wringing their hands over something that's going on currently, the, the race is still fairly fluid. I mean, if you look at a Monmouth poll from Iowa, so this is just Iowa, um, you only have 12 percent of Republicans who say, I've completely decided. You know, you have a lot. You have 42 percent who say have strong preference uh, for who they've actually picked. But, you know, uh, most are going to say, like, I, I can really move around. And then. Uh, and then there was a second question about how many of the Republican candidates now running can you realistically see yourself caucusing for in February? Is it one or two, three to four, five to six? And about a quarter say it's one or two. Other folks say, well, there's actually three or four or five or six. A majority say there's more than two, three or more. So that's a sign that this race can still, even we though. We are still in the Tinder phase. We are still in the swiping <laughs> left and right phase. We have not gotten to the e-harmony. I'm really looking for my perfect match face. Totally yet. appropriate cell phone activity, by the way. Yes. <laughs> According to Pew. Um, so, yeah, so that I think is all pretty interesting. Um, and, you know, the good news, and we're going to talk a little bit about this with Anne. I mean, the good news, I think, 
for folks who've been watching the race is that the upcoming CNN debate is going to change their rules in order to allow uh, Carly Fiorina to, to be on the main stage, given that she's had a recent surge. So they they had their rules where they were looking at polling from the last two months. They're going to change it so folks who've moved recently can can participate uh, in a in a different level, which I think is makes sense given all given what we've seen with the last uh, bit of data. Um, and then yeah, she's right yeah. now in the Huffington Post pollster averages. She's in fourth place. It looks like is that am I if I'm looking at yes. this correctly? Um, and then if you look at the USA Today coaches poll, of which Margie and I are two of the coaches, right? Uh, Carly Fiorina comes in sixth as as having um, as as in terms of candidate strength. So it's pretty clear that she deserves to be on the stage. And it's uh, you know we'll talk about the changing criteria, but I'm I for one am pleased that they amended. Um, amended things so that, that that Carly Fiorina can have a moment on the stage. Yeah, me too. And I think, you know, I mean, last time, although it was pretty exciting to see the way people followed the polling so breathlessly to see who was going to be on the main stage. And I, I guess we're not going to really see that this time around. They're just going to nip that in the bud by changing the rules. Um so maybe you won't see this sort of everybody kind of just looking at who's in the top 10, every single poll, like, um, uh, and tracking it very closely. But I think this probably makes more sense. I think that what's interesting about that coaches poll is it almost lags a little bit behind where voters are. If you look at the Huffington Post pollster rundown of where the 20, the Republican candidates are, um, you know, Fiorina's higher. Fiorina's ahead of Rubio and Cruz. Bush is third. Um, if you look at the coaches poll, Fiorina's six, Bush and Rubio and Cruz all ahead of her. I, you know, I, I guess it sort of depends of, you know, what you're what you're looking at. But I think the fact that Fiorina is a little bit higher currently, I think that makes more sense than the coaches poll. Um, you know, but Chris and I only have two votes. We don't, we don't yeah. have all the votes. <laughs> well, it also depends on what you think is affecting the two. So, you know. How does the feedback loop work, right? When when the coaches like you and I are making our judgments, how much are our judgments being driven by the polls versus how much are our judgments being driven by like who's just gone up on the air in Iowa, New Hampshire, and what is that thing that Jeb Bush tweeted out, and you know the stuff that insiders follow breathlessly, but that no one else does. Um, you know, for each of us insiders in this poll, you know, we're all weighing all of these different factors. Um, beyond just the polls when we decide. So, you know, that can be part of why it's different. And then also, if, like, a big news story breaks, uh, you know, the polls will will catch up to people hearing about that story. The insiders might hear about it first, and it might affect their rankings earlier. Um, so, you know, I mean, these things, the sequencing can be very... The sequencing can kind of be all over the place, depending on what it is these quote-unquote insiders choose to take into consideration. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, you know, the general election polling that's come out, and we haven't seen too many head-to-heads of actual candidates in the past week, um, but you Why did bother. Why <laughs> even bother at this point? <laughs> true, true. But there was some favorability and also just some other, you know, national polling that just shows voters really divided and angry in a way that I think, you know, it is a bummer, right? I mean, I, I, we're hoping, I mean, each year you sort of have this renewed hope that this is going to be the election year where sort of people come together and it's not quite so combative and mean-spirited. But if you look at where voters are now, they actually seem to be in a pretty angry place, you know, pretty angry um, by a couple different measures. So you have ABC 
uh, poll that shows Clinton's ratings are um, are are worse than they've been, you know, in decades. Um, all of the top candidates are net negative, uh, net unfavorable. Whether it's Clinton, Trump, or Bush, Biden is even fave unfave, and that makes him the most popular just by being even. Um, Quinnipiac asked a variety of questions about, uh, you know, how angry or enthusiastic or dissatisfied you are uh, with how things are going with the federal government. You have about a quarter say they're angry. Uh, another, you know, 50 percent who say they're not angry, but they're dissatisfied. Um, and then you have uh, the Seltzer poll in Iowa, the Bloomberg Politics Des Moines Register poll, that actually asked people, are you mad as hell about this, which I haven't seen as a answer category before. And you have, you know, there Democrats and Republicans mad as hell about all, all kinds of things, not typically the same thing, aside from maybe money and politics, but mad as hell about, you know, a whole host of things. So what do you think about this? Chris and I don't feel very angry, but when I look at some of these numbers, I, I do feel badly that that's sort of where we are as in our discourse. Yeah. I mean, so take something like the, uh, like politicians in general, um, the vast majority say they are unsatisfied and you have 22% of Democrats, 29% of Republicans who say they are mad as hell. I mean, when I take a look at this, this, this is the seeds of Donald Trumpism, right? Only 7% of Republicans are mad as hell about Donald Trump. Um, while 48% say they are satisfied. 16% say they are happy about it. Um, and then when you look actually, so if you look at Democrats in Congress and how Democrats feel, you have uh, 6% who are happy, 41% who are satisfied. So you've got 47% who are happy or satisfied with their own party in Congress for the Democrats. When you look at the Republicans, you only have 22% of Republicans who are happy or satisfied with Republicans in Congress. You have 21% of Republicans who are mad as hell about Republicans in Congress. And, you know, you have this really big, like, Republican anger about their own side. And and actually a very kind of weird place this shows up. If you look at the Clinton, Trump, and Bush fave-unfave ratings, and you look at it by race, Jeb Bush actually does worse. Uh, He, his fave-unfave among whites is about as bad as Hillary Clinton's that white voters view Bush as being like the same as Hillary Clinton. And that actually Jeb Bush's strongest group is Hispanics. Like that's how much frustration there is among white voters toward Democrats and to the establishment. And that's why you see among white voters, Donald Trump running at about even fave unfave. It's like the, the level of just anger um, is, is extraordinary. And you just see it throughout this poll in terms of the percentage of Republican caucus goers who say they are mad as hell about the government, Barack Obama, Wall Street, uh, the Supreme Court. I mean, there is, I was actually really surprised that far fewer Democrats were mad as hell about the Supreme Court. It's clear that the gay marriage ruling this summer really, like that's the lens through which people are viewing the court if these numbers are, are if these numbers hold. But yep. alas, I digress. There's a lot of anger out there and Republicans in particular are really ticked off and they're oftentimes ticked off at the very people we think of as being the Republican establishment. Yes. Yeah, so a couple points on that. To the race piece, the 
ABC Langer poll, as you know, showed that there's actually more of a racial gap for Clinton's faves than for Trump or Bush's, that while Trump doesn't do very well with Latinos or African-Americans, you know, most likely due to his various recent comments and actions, Clinton struggles with whites. Um, The second piece as to Republicans being dissatisfied with their own party um, we talked about this last week. We had a fantastic guest co-host in Kellyanne Conway, and one of the polls we spoke about was a Pew, uh, a Pew tracking data on unfavorability toward both parties, and that there was a record high unfavorability toward both parties, about a quarter of Americans. That was a new high, and that most of that came from a jump in Republicans being unfavorable toward their own party, that that, you know, really explained it. And so I think that's a lot of where this Trump stuff comes from. As you note, that's different from what's going on on the left. You know, the left is really, you know, whatever it's about on the left, whether it's issues or folks responding to Clinton or folks responding to Sanders, it's a little bit less of this, you know, we're mad at the party for some reason. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is this, you know, when you, we, there's another question. I think this was from the Quinnipiac poll. I'm going to mention four phrases and ask you which one best describes how you feel about the way the federal government works. Um, enthusiastic, satisfied, dissatisfied, but not angry, or angry. Um, and 39% of Republicans are angry. Um, and you actually, and you see this clustered mostly among older voters. You see this mostly among whiter voters. And actually, younger voters. You still have 19 percent who are angry, but most of them are just kind of dissatisfied. They're they're like turned off, but they're not pissed. (laughs) But it's older, whiter voters who are just ticked off. And Donald Trump is the vehicle for that anger. Yep. Yep. So then in some other national polls and maybe some of these questions might be called troll poll questions or maybe they're just, you know, just illustrative of (laughs) where things are. Um, PPP uh, and the Des Moines Register asked some questions about um, where was Obama born? Was he born in the United States? Is he a Muslim or is he a Christian? Um, That sort of theme of questions uh, that always gets some ink. Um, in the Iowa poll, you had Democrats overwhelmingly say Obama was born in the United States. Um, it, you had a little bit more division among Republican caucus goers. Just 42 percent said he was born in the United States. Then PPP had a uh, national poll. And then among Republicans, this is just among Republicans, uh, you have more Republicans in the PPP poll say that Ted Cruz was born in the United States than say or that Obama was born in the United States, even though Ted Cruz was not born in the United States. He was born in Canada and Obama was born in the United States. So um, so that was a particularly interesting finding. So, Kristen, do you want to talk about some fantastic matchups? Okay. So first, I just want to apologize to our listeners that we even polled this. Um, but at Echelon, we having dabbled in the wonderful world of Google consumer surveys recently, um, have discovered that for the low, low cost of $50, you, too, can survey 500 adults nationwide on just about anything you want. So we did a survey following the MTV Video Music Awards um, where Kanye West, in his re- speech receiving some Lifetime Achievement Award, announced he is going to run for president in 2020. Um, now, I the last time I was on Real Time with Bill Maher, Bill Maher said that he thinks Donald Trump is the white Kanye. So Donald Trump, Kanye West, they are both uh, bombastic, controversial, 
people who really think that they themselves are fantastic and amazing. They like Twitter. They like Twitter. And so we wanted to figure out who would win if Donald Trump and Kanye West were running against each other for president. So in this matchup, Donald Trump leads 38% to Kanye West's 21%. 41% of Americans looked at this poll and went, are you kidding me? And said they were undecided. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was a sample of 500 adults. Uh, and Kanye West uh, trails with men 41 to 25. So Trump wins 41%. Uh, but Kanye does much better with men than he does with women. Um, Kanye only gets 12% of women. So as much as we've talked about Donald Trump being um, pretty horrible when it comes to how he's dealing with women and Megyn Kelly and some of these comments, um, and the fact that women tend to be a little more democratic than men, and presumably Kanye West would not be running as the Republican, um, it was astonishing to me that, that women actually broke more heavily for Donald Trump. Um, but women were also much more likely to be decided. Good job, ladies. 51% of women said, like, I'm not even dealing with this question. <laughs> um, and there was a generational split. Uh, Kanye West actually wins the older millennials, the 25 to 34 year olds, while Trump wins the younger millennials, the 18 to 24 year olds. So there you have it. That is our... Kanye West, Donald Trump matchup. I think that's fantastic. You know, my daughter has a favorite book that's called Shark versus Train. And it's, you know, <laughs> and it's like, which does, which would win, you know, Shark versus Train if you're having a lemonade stand, if you are a ride in an amusement park, if you are playing video games, they both lose because they don't have thumbs, right? So it's, <laughs> it's kind of, it, this is sort of like that somehow. <laughs> and then one of our uh, listeners, tweeted that they had done a Google uh, consumer survey of Sanders versus Caitlyn Jenner. And in that matchup, Sanders won handily, which I think makes sense given that Caitlyn Jenner is not, you know, hasn't even teased that she would run for office. I don't think so. So that probably, I think, makes a lot of sense. So um, next we're going to have our fantastic interview with Ann Seltzer and she is going to help us make sense out of all of these data. Well, we're so excited to have Ann Seltzer with us today. She is the preeminent pollster in Iowa. She is just legendary uh, with the folks who follow polling for her record of accuracy. And we know each other a bit from your work with Bloomberg Politics, which is where this poll uh, came from, Des Moines Register and Bloomberg Politics, as well as Purple's work with Bloomberg Politics. But we're here we're talking about your latest poll that came out this weekend. So thanks again, Ann, for joining us. Great to be here. If you could please tell us just a little bit for our listeners who aren't aware, tell us a little bit about, you know, the background of your of the Seltzer poll. And also if you have some, you know, I know there are plenty of examples where your poll maybe was a little bit different from conventional wisdom and how um, but then your poll ended up being accurate and, and what that may mean for your more recent results in Iowa. Okay, that sounds like I can give the whole history here, so I'll try to keep it brief. The short, uh, short version of the history. The shorthand version. So I have been uh, polling in Iowa since 1987. 
Um, so there was only one caucus cycle that I wasn't involved in, and that, so I have a lot of experience in doing that kind of thing. But our methodology that we use is the same that we would use when we were polling in, in Michigan and polling in Indiana in 2008, um, both interesting races. Uh, so just, there isn't anything about me that is unique to Iowa, except when it comes to caucus time, I have a lot of experience in polling caucus goers. The way that we do it is to start with the registered voter list and, and get as many uh, phone numbers as we can appended onto that. We talk to everybody when there's an open seat. We talk whether you are registered Republican, Independent, or Democrat. We want to find out if you are intending to go to caucus. So we screen from the active voter list, are, will you say you would definitely go, probably go, might or might not go, probably not go? We take the definites and probables. That gives us a little bit of an analytic tool to see who the core is and who the people who are maybe a little bit more sitting on the fringe of that. Um, and that's how we go about it. We, we don't begin by making assumptions about what the electorate will look like. Um, certainly with caucus goers, that would be uh, – you. That would be, you'd have to be pretty brave because we have seen caucuses where suddenly there were double the number of people who had been before. So what, how could you look at the history and say it's going to look like this when we know that something can happen that will truly change the landscape of what we know about how caucuses work? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what's the big headline then? So that's that's really interesting and really also a good lesson for polling in general that, you know, you can always take folks out of your sample, not you can't add them if you don't, don't talk to them and you you'll, you might miss something that's happening in terms of turnout. And I guess that's true whether you're talking about a caucus or a primary or a general election. It's just that the, the primaries and caucuses have a lot more variability, I guess, to them than, than like a presidential general election vote. But t- what's the big headline for from your most recent poll? I think the big headline is really on both sides. Let's start with the Republican side. The last time we polled was in May, and we went back to try to do a profile once, once Donald Trump got hot to say, okay, well, what do Trump voters look like? And we had fewer than 20 bodies. You know, we didn't have enough people to even take a look in May, and now suddenly he's leading the pack. So the headline is that that's a pretty hard charge pretty fast, Within that, though, Margie, I'm going to say that the thing that is most shocking is that he went from having over 60% unfavorable ratings, which everybody said, well, that indicates he's, you know, he doesn't have upward potential. He now has over 60% favorable. So he has completely flipped uh, the view of likely caucus goers in terms of how they like him or not. So people ask, early on, is this for real? Is this for real? And we don't know how long it will last, but for right now, it's for real. And this in second place is Ben Carson. You couldn't think of two more different personalities, could you? So, so that's interesting. If you add Trump's support to Carson's support, add in Carly Fiorina, who's also never held office, that's 46% right. of likely Iowa caucus goers. So I think the headline on the Republican side is people are ready to risk having someone with no experience in office because they're so fed up with the people who are in office and have held office. 
Yeah, you know, one thing that was pretty interesting, I'm also curious, uh, Kristen's thoughts in terms of folk, of folks' views on the right. You know, you rele- there was a, a second wave of stuff released, I think, yesterday um, from your poll that showed uh, quite a few people, like a majority of Republicans, were worried about Trump's faith, that he, you know, said he had never asked for God's forgiveness, which is a pretty, you know, I, I don't think I've ever seen that phrase in a, in a candidate poll question before, at least not one that, that was has been released. Um, um, and again, as you mentioned, the opposite of Ben Carson, who has incredibly strong favorables, who, you know, who is known for um, or, you know, is is becoming the, the top re- sort of religious conservative candidates taking that role. Um, what do you make of those of, of that dynamic? Well, we ask people to kind of identify what faction they consider that they're part of the most. So you could have, be a Tea Partier, you could be a business oriented uh establishment conservative, you could be a Christian conservative. And the we sort of then could take a look at how those factions were lining up uh, by candidate. The Christian conservatives among that group, just as you're saying, Ben Carson, in fact, leads over Donald Trump with that group. The, the question that we asked only of Christian conservatives, no, sorry, we didn't ask it only of Christian conservatives, but we could break them out. And that's where the majority of 59% said they were bothered, um, that he says he's a Christian, he says he goes to church, but has never asked God for forgiveness. Among all Republican caucus goers, it's just 36% who say they're worried about that and 16% among Trump supporters. And one of the questions that I wanted to ask you about, you know, when we take a look at the the ballot test and where people are standing, I wanted to ask you about the Selzer score. Mm-hmm. So this is something that, um, you know, in this in this most recent cycle, folks have talked a lot about because you have 17 people running on the Republican side. And sometimes when you do a ballot test, you know, you find that there are an awful lot of people who poll between four and nine percent and it's all kind of a mush. Um, and, and you've got this score that you use to sort of help sift people out a little bit differently. Can you tell our, our listeners a little bit about your how you developed the Selzer score and sort of why it's better than just looking at this initial, well, who would you vote for number? Well, I'll tell you, I was looking at that who would you vote for number with 17 candidates in the mix. And maybe, maybe it was just 16 at that time. Jim Gilmore hadn't uh, declared yet. But I thought, how do you how do you make sense out of who could be rising? Because we're seeing this huddled mass. You're exactly right, Kristen, at about 4 or 5%. And, you know, it's hard to separate them out. So I was looking for a way um, to say who really is stronger than they appear in the horse race. So we just played around a little bit. It, it, it's just a logical index that we created. The most important thing you can do is win. So we took the percentage that you got for the people saying that they would be your first choice, and we doubled it to give that extra weight. We added in the percent who said you would be their second choice because that's a strong showing of support. And then we had asked for every candidate who wasn't your first or second choice whether you thought you would ever support that candidate or never support that candidate. And we took their ever score, and because that's less important, we halved it. We just divided by two and added those scores together. And that gave us, that spread the field, first of all. So you didn't have six candidates within a percentage yep. point of each other. So to, that was very helpful analytically. And then it also sort of showed you who had rising potential. 
mm-hmm. and who, in fact, was perhaps not as strong as they might look. And I'm just looking at our initial score now, where Rand Paul was one of those people getting kind of 4% uh, at, next to Carly Fiorina. At, at, uh, sorry, that, that's this time around. But their Selzer score is lower, placing them lower in the pack than their overall number for, for Rand Paul, higher for Carly Fiorina. So we've kind of seen that play out, and I think it gave us uh, a better sense of, of what, where there was potential. It was also in the context, maybe you want to talk about this, of the Fox News poll that was going to choose the people polling in the top ten. Right. And again, in a field that big, with only 100 percentage points to go around, you're necessarily got a lot of people in single digits. And my concern was, wow, what if they're all within half a percentage point? Maybe that's where you're drawing the line. And as we all know, polling is a science of estimation. So you're going to make kind of a decision that is meaningful for this candidate's future on the basis of a whole bunch of combined estimates where there might be a percentage point or less dividing the haves from the have-nots. So it's interesting how all of that came around. Yeah, and so you probably then would agree with CNN's recent decision to add candidate, you know, change the way they're looking at uh, the top 10 to to uh, make sure that candidates who had a recent rise can get included in their in their, you know, sit on the the, the big table, so to speak, as a way to include Carly Fiorina, because originally they were looking at the past right. two months. So I guess, you know, in, in lieu of using you know, they weren't using the Seltzer score, but it does have maybe a similar effect of making sure that people who were rising could be included. Yeah, I couldn't understand the rationale for their, um, the way they had set that up in the first place. And I, I wrote a piece for Bloomberg Politics that said they must not have had a pollster sitting at the table. Because if you're going to go back that far before the first debate uh, and then take all of those early polls, which there was no guarantee there were going to be a lot of polls between the first and second debate. You were anchoring those low-scoring people to those early polls when the whole idea to have a debate is to change opinion. And the formula they had set up pretty much guaranteed that you'd get the same people in the same place. So what I think they've done is kind of a halfway step, which is everybody who qualified under their old rule will still qualify. So you're still going to see John Kasich. You're still going to see Chris Christie um, sitting at the, the big table. They're, they've sort of opened it up to add somebody rising. Right. And that's Carly Fiorina. Um, but I, I, I was mystified, at, and maybe you two have some insight into that, as to why, what, how they defended going back that far and including that many polls that would be before the first debate, it just I, I, it, it didn't make sense to me. Yeah, my, my assumption there is that that was just somebody said, well, let's just take two months of worth of polls before the debate, because I think wasn't the cutoff July 16th, which is exactly two months before. I mean, it just it, I, I assume that's what the meeting looked like, that it was a bunch of people, none of whom were pollsters, going... <laughs> Uh, two months before sounds good. Right, or it's <laughs> smoothing out whatever sort of volatility there may be, perhaps. I don't know. Yep. 
Right, but over, but in fact, it was kind of over smoothing, <laughs> smoothing a little bit too much. Um, so, uh, you know, the other thing that I, um, you know, that that strike, strikes a lot of people from the Republican side, and then we can turn to the Democratic side, is um, you know having uh, you know candidates who were initially top tier slipping, like Walker and Bush. I mean, do you think that that um, that trend is going to continue? Do you what are you seeing on the ground? Are you seeing something? on the ground that has uh that that may be uh affecting that or do you think this is really all about people focusing now on trump and carson not necessarily turning away from some other candidates well i think it's a combination of both that is there is a focus on trump and carson but if you were strong for your candidate that wouldn't matter so it it says that it's a volatile field, which it always is at Iowa caucuses. There's no state that looks at more candidates than this. And Iowans are notorious for saying, hey, I've only met four or five. I need to meet, you know, nine, <laughs> 10, 11 <laughs> candidates before I make up my mind. But it does, it is a wake up call to the Scott Walker campaign who might have thought they could breeze to a win in Iowa, that there's going to be hard work uh, to be done, unless, of course, something happens uh, to Donald Trump, I would think. But um, I think it, you really have to do the work and it's yet to be seen if, if Donald Trump can defy that piece that is caucus legend. Um, many caucus cycles ago, Steve Forbes decided to run for president and decided he could do that from New York and he just buy millions and millions of dollars worth of advertising and he didn't win. So it, it, it is a lot about meeting the people and making that personal connection. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the, you have a list of uh, issues and say, is this going to be a strength or a weakness for Trump? And one of his biggest weaknesses is seen as understanding Iowa, where he's tied, basically, about, about as many say exactly. it would be a strength as it would be a weakness. And then another question, which I thought was pretty funny, um, do you believe Donald Trump cares more about people like you or people like Donald Trump? <laughs> Again, people were <laughs> evenly divided, exactly evenly divided. I guess it's a pretty similar gets at the same thing, which is, you know, even though he's had, I mean, this is the thing that's interesting. He's had an incredible flip in favorables in your poll from going completely net unfavorable to completely net favorable in just a short period of time, which is pretty remarkable for someone so well known, you know, in the public consciousness for so long. But yet beneath the surface, he still has these vulnerabilities where he, you know, there's a group of people who say he's like us or he cares about me, but there's an overwhelming that says no way. Well, and just keep in mind that among Trump supporters, it's seven to one saying Trump cares about people like them. So they, and, and really that question, the genesis of it was the New Hampshire focus group, yep. Margie, that I think you helped with. Yep. And somebody, the jaw dropping moment where somebody says, you know, he's one of us. And John Heilman said, what do you mean? He's a billionaire. He's <laughs> flies on a plane that has his name on it. They said, well, no, the way he talks about issues is the way we talk about issues. Right. He's a billionaire, and, but he's still like us. I mean, that is, you know, uh, it, and, and, you know, I, I was in my maternity break closet then, but, you know, but that quote has been, I mean, I was out talking to somebody yesterday who still remembered that quote. So that was probably yeah. one of the big yeah. focus group quote, sticky quotes of the cycle. At least we'll see uh, how that plays out. Um, so Democratic... Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go yeah, ahead. I was I was going to jump in and say, you know, and I want to ask you about the Democratic side now, um, and, and and sort of to tee it up by um, asking you a little bit about, you know, 
your polling has just been right on the money um, in in Iowa, particularly time and time again, when other polls have kind of shown different things and you have defied the conventional wisdom and have come up right time and again. Harry Enton um, at 538, he tweeted, <laughs> there was a Twitter exchange I saw this week that said the river is lined with the bodies of people who have doubted your polls because you always come up right. Um, but he said it in the context of your poll of the Democratic side of this race, where right now most of the polls coming out of Iowa right now have Hillary Clinton over 50 percent with Bernie Sanders hovering in kind of the 20s-ish. Um, and, and the Des Moines Register Bloomberg Selzer poll that just came out showed Clinton at 37 percent with Sanders at 30. I mean, a, only a seven point gap. Right. Um, tell us a little bit about this poll and. Uh, what you think has happened if you if what you think has been going on that's made this poll so different from the other polls? Well, let me in fact go back to the the initial question about our track record and talk about 2008 for a second because I think that puts this all into context. Mm-hmm. And our poll came out on New Year's Eve night, showing Obama with an easy victory, uh, showing Hillary Clinton in third place, and there was a lot of. Uh, outrage from the Clinton campaign and memos flying about and pay no attention to this poll. And uh, by the way, I didn't know that any of that was going on. So I found out kind of accidentally the next day. But a friend of mine, in fact, who was running Clinton's state campaign called me up on New Year's Day afternoon and said, you know, I've always trusted your polls until now. I've knocked on 99 doors and I don't find this lurking Obama support. I said, well, tell me about the doors you've been knocking on. And he said, well, registered Democrats and people who have caucused before. Uh. Said, this is why you're not seeing the lurking Obama support. She's very strong with those groups. We were showing, and this was jaw-dropping, we were showing that 60% of the people who were going to caucus on the Democratic side would be first-time caucus goers. And the reason that we were able, you know, people were, thought that was crazy. They also thought I had assumed it. And I had to say, no, my data tells me that that's what's going to happen. I, I didn't, dis- how, how would anybody sit at a desk and decide, I think, you know, the first time turnout is going to be this. I, yeah, I just don't know how you would do that. But the, the reality was that on caucus night, it was about 60% showing up who were first time caucus goers. So now let's flash forward to this poll. And Hillary Clinton has not been having good weeks and weeks plural. So it, there's been kind of a question mark over her head. She's not been all that active campaigning. She's not drawing, I think, on purpose, big crowds. So it's, it, that's a real contrast from the Bernie Sanders style of campaigning. He wants a big crowd. He makes people, I have understand, feel good about being a Democrat, and there's pent-up demand for that. So, so you can kind of see a difference in the campaign. But when I looked at these data, I thought, oh, this is 2008 all over again. Bernie Sanders trails by seven points overall, but he leads among first-time caucus goers by eight points. He leads with independence. He leads with people under the age of 45. Now, there's some overlap, obviously, among those three groups, but those were the three groups that were the Obama a course to victory in Iowa that he went out and if, if he, they relied on people who had caucused before he figured he would lose. He went out and recruited new caucus goers and therefore had an easy uh, time winning. If she has not learned before now 
that those are important groups and that you can go out and recruit new people. That Perhaps this poll is a wake-up call. Yes, I mean, uh, you know, this is what passes for a fun Saturday night at my house since my husband's on Team Bernie Sanders and, and uh, his firm is working on Sanders' campaign. Our Saturday night talk was talking about this poll <laughs> and uh, what, what good news it was for the Sanders team. You know, the Clinton folks would argue, and I think it's also a fair point on the other hand, that um, that uh, no candidate has won, no non-incumbent has won uh, a caucus in Iowa. Democratic caucus uh, above 50 percent, that being under 50 percent doesn't mean, you know, people sort of look at, at the changing and fluctuation in numbers as a sign that the Hillary uh, Clinton campaign is in free fall when we're talking about sort of normal fluctuation and a normal place for even a front runner to be. I mean, what do you make of that argument? Well, I think that this field isn't terribly crowded. So you have Martin O'Malley and you have um, Lincoln Chafee and you have uh, Jim Webb, they're, they're pulling in low single digits. So what that says is that you really have two active candidates, and um, we included Joe Biden, by the way, in, in the list. He got 14%. Right. But, but the idea of that you never win with more than 50%, though I think it just kind of flashing back historically, the Democratic fields are typically crowded. Mm. So the, the one time it wasn't crowded was when Tom Harkin decided to run in 1992. We didn't really have caucus. I mean, in theory, we had a caucus, but, right. <laughs> but nobody came to the state to campaign. So right. he would have won the caucus with more than 50%. I think he won it with over 60%. Um, so it just has to do more with the size of the field than it has to say about Iowa caucuses are always very close. Uh, okay. Okay. That's a fair point. Um, and then the other thing that I think strikes a lot of people is the num- overwhelming percentage of Sanders voters who say they support Sanders because they like Sanders and the issues, not as a rejection of uh, Clinton. We've seen that in other polls, I've, you know, other polls that you've done. I've seen that in other polls that other outlets have done. Um, it, it, yet I, I do see some folks sort of looking at the at the race and saying, well, this is a rejection of Clinton, but then Sanders voters are saying, no, that's not what it's about. What, what do you think it is? Well, it's probably some of, some of each, actually. I mean, one of the things we think about when we're crafting questions is, what are people saying? How are people explaining this race? And, and the pundits certainly were talking about the Bernie Sanders vote as being an anti-Hillary vote. And of course, if you like Bernie Sanders, you're choosing him over Hillary Clinton. So there's something to that. But we wanted to go straight at that question. So we asked Sanders supporters, is this more because you align with Bernie Sanders and his ideas, or is it because you don't care for Hillary Clinton? 96% said this is a pro-Bernie Sanders vote. Um, now, you can say that it's not an anti-Hillary Clinton vote when you see that she gets, she's a large share of the people who choose him as their first choice choose her as their second choice. So in, you can kind of analyze it as an anti-Hillary Clinton vote because, of course, it is. They're choosing somebody else, but it isn't the motivation inside of those likely caucus goers. And then what do you make of the Biden candidacy? Who do you think he helps or hurts more, uh, Clinton or Sanders? Well, we took a look at including him, and he got 14%. And we then asked for the second choice, so we, we always, which we always do, but we can reallocate the people who said Biden is their first choice, reallocate 
their second choice and throw them back into the main horse race question, he draws about equally from Hillary Clinton and from Bernie Sanders. So there's no clear um, sense that one candidate over the other at this early stage uh, is being affected by that. I guess my last question then is I, I want to t- hear your thoughts on Carly Fiorina a little bit. So, you know, we, we talked about this, the, the debate, po- the politics of the debate and how, you know, now it's, it's likely because CNN has changed its rules that she'll make her way in. You know, she's sort of consistently made this argument that, look, in places like Iowa, in places where she's spending more time, in places where people hear about her, um, they like her more. And I, I, I seem to recall that early on, I think her Selzer score was very good because, you know, she had, you know, she has, she's always had good favorables among, you know, people who know, people didn't know her that much, but those who did know her liked her and were open to her. Um, are, is there, are you seeing anything interesting about the trajectory of Carly Fiorina and where she's drawing her support that suggests what her role in the race might be in the coming month? Well, I think this is someone who has quite a bit of upside potential. Um, She has become better known since our previous poll in May. She is up 23 points in favorability. Um, Only Trump is higher than that in terms of an increase. So you're absolutely right. As people get to know her, there's a lot of what they're seeing that they like. Um, And again, that she is a different kind of candidate, I think that helps. She has focused um, at at least up until the last few weeks almost exclusively on attacking Hillary Clinton, and we'll see now if she feels she's got a foothold in the Republican side that she wants to distinguish herself from those other candidates. We'll see. I'm I'm curious to see the next debate, but there's uh, there's a lot of upside potential. She's she grew a great deal in terms of her Selzer score. I think only Ben Carson and Donald Trump grew faster, grew, grew more dramatically. Than she did. And I guess my final question has nothing to do with 2016 or anything uh, of that nature, but just, uh, you know, I I am always interested in talking to other pollsters who have been in the business for a while about what made you decide to become a pollster? What got you into this field in the first place? Well, when I give a little talk about my career, I said, I say I was born to poll, but I did my first poll when I was five years old. I had a nickname I didn't like, so I walked around the neighborhood and I asked my friend's moms if they thought that name sounded like a good name for a witch, which, you know, is a leading question, and it's kind of an odd sample frame, but <laughs> there, there, there it was, and, and I came home and told my mom that really, you know, nine out of ten, not, not really, but something like that. I said, I've talked to people, and they, I'd like to get rid of this name, and I got, to my parents' credit, that was the end of that, so that probably subliminally is is a little bit always been lurking there. I was always interested in science and data, always interested in how people come to hold the opinions that they hold. So my graduate work is actually in communication theory and research. So understanding audiences, understanding how you sway the opinions of large groups of people. And polling kind of got the political bug. I spent a year on Capitol Hill as a congressional fellow. Um, and it just dovetailed nicely. It's data, it's science, it's people's attitudes. Oh, it's politics. It's, you know, it, it matters. Great. Well, thank you so much. It's been really a pleasure to chat with you about it and uh, exciting stuff this week. Lots of uh, fun stuff for everybody uh, who follows polling and campaigns to chew on. So thanks again. Yeah, thank you, Anne. A pleasure to be here. 
Okay, so that was Ann Seltzer. We're so glad that she could join us. And then our, to wrap up, we're going to talk about cell phone etiquette. And Pew had some interesting data, I think, confirming what, you know, what perhaps people may know, which sometimes it's okay to check your phone and sometimes it's not. But among some folks, it's always okay to check your phone. <laughs> as, an, as an always phone checker, I'm not sure. <laughs> I think I'm more in line with millennials on some of these data than, than yep. with folks in my own, my own cohort. Well, so the, the way that these questions were posed is it asks about acceptability of using a cell phone. Um, so it doesn't specify smartphone and, you know, use of a cell phone. When I think, when I first read the question, I think it sounds like talking on a cell phone, even though 95% of what I do on my cell phone is not talking on a cell phone. It's browsing the internet. It's doing all this other stuff. Um, so for me, the question wording I thought was really interesting because, you know, you can hear using a cell phone and, and take it a variety of different ways. Yeah. I mean, what I think is pretty right. And what I think is particularly interesting is how many people use a cell phone when they're in a social activity, that 90% of folks that they use their phone during their most recent social activity with others. Now, again, you know, it's not all browsing the web but or making a phone call. Some of it's just reading a message. But still, it's pretty high. I mean, that's a pretty high number. I mean, using an app is pretty vague. I'm surprised that that's so low because, I mean, you're using an app for so many of these things. But um, but it's still pretty interesting how common it is. What people don't do very frequently is use their cell phones to avoid talking to people, or at least they don't admit to that. They they say they're using their cell phones to really find out some information, you know, making sure they're really, you know, they're getting where they need to be. They're looking up something that they really need to know. They're coordinating with others not to be antisocial. They're using it to be more social. But maybe people are overestimating that. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I think that most people, they would never admit to you that they view their own cell phone use as actually being an antisocial behavior because so much of what you're doing is engaging in just a new form of social behavior. Um, but the stuff that I, you know, in this poll, they ask questions about, is it acceptable to use your phone on public transportation? Actually, a very high percentage of people, is that is that about two thirds? Or pardon me, um, almost 75% say it is acceptable to use your phone on public transportation. And yeah. that's where I, I raise this question of like, yeah, when I'm on the metro, absolutely, I'm using my phone to browse the internet or check Twitter. Um, I, I don't know who would say it's not appropriate to use a cell phone on public transportation, but you know, as far as I'm concerned, I I, I use cell phones in nearly all of these cir circumstances, including you know being someplace where you're like, oh, okay, I'm not sure. If I know anybody at this event yet, I'm just going to check my phone for a couple of minutes. I mean, I think yeah. I've done every single one of these things. Yeah. Well, and I think it depends, too, on – I think for a lot of people when they hear that question, do they hear cell phone use like I'm talking on a cell phone? Or are they thinking I'm using a smartphone to do something like web browsing that's not in any way disruptive? So if you're somebody that hears using a cell phone and you think talking – I can then see you being one of the like quarter of people that say, no, it's not acceptable to use a cell phone on public transportation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I guess it depends more on like what the use of the cell phone is compared to 
that you know certain uses are okay in certain venues and not others. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I even like that's true. And right, the people who are more likely to find these various uses objectionable are probably the most likely to think you're talking about actually yakking on the phone, which, as you know, not everybody, you know, that's sort of an outdated use of a phone at this point. But even yeah. you know, about half of folks say that they frequently or occasionally use a phone. Um, for no particular reason, just for something to do, which I thought was, you know. I have been there. Yeah, it's That's good. I know. most of my Twitter uses. <laughs> I know, right? From one heavy phone user to another. And I would imagine a lot of our listeners are heavy phone users. And while you're on, if you're on your phone, not driving, make sure you write us a review or follow us on Twitter or Facebook. And Kristen, uh, well, let's do the key findings before we go through all that again. Um, people, why are you so angry when you have candidates like Trump and Kanye in the race. I just don't get it. Um, but make sure you're following the polls closely so you can be, uh, so you don't get burned by uh, the data out there. And if my husband had a podcast, it might be called I Hate My Wife's Cell Phone. <laughs> and she uses it too infrequently. So, Kristen, where can people find us? You can find us on Twitter at, at the pollsters. You can find Margie at, at Margie O'Mero, and I'm at Kay Soltis Anderson. You can find us at, at or you can find us at thepolsters.com or on Facebook, where we're always posting the latest, greatest polls that we find. Thank you to Ann Selzer for joining us this week. Make sure that you go and give us a review, especially if you're listening to us on Stitcher. Um, we would really appreciate it. Great. Thanks, everybody. See you next week.